0: Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. We talk a lot about entrepreneurship on this show, but not everyone is cut out to be an entrepreneur. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Not everyone wants to go through all the craziness to start their own business. But if you're listening to this show, I bet you do want to have control over your own life, to have a meaningful career, to have flexible, uh, autonomous work situation, and to help build cool things. Great news. You can help entrepreneurs focus on what they do best by doing what you do best. And if what you do best is attention to details, is numbers, accounting, finance, I have an amazing opportunity for you right now. Charleston, South Carolina, Ceteris, fast growing startup that is helping small businesses automate and turn their accounting processes into something that's not a headache, but is actually a delight. If you want to join that team, go to isaac.ceteris.com and get more info. We are back with an early guest, Steve Patterson. Steve, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Isaac. Great to be with you.
0: So for those of you who um, don't remember, you should go back and listen to the episode because all of these episodes are worth listening to like three times. Um, <laughs> Steve, at the time, which was probably a year ago, maybe longer than a year ago, year and a half ago, uh, had just quit his day job, so to speak, to go full-time into pursuing philosophy, essentially, writing about ideas um, as an intellectual entrepreneur, uh, raising support for his work as he produced it. And since that time, Steve not only is writing great essays on his website, stevepatterson.com, and producing excellent uh, videos on his YouTube channel, but he has launched a podcast called Patterson in Pursuit, which is one of my favorites. I've only listened to probably five or six um, episodes because they always... I can't like listen to them while I'm doing something else. Cause they're pretty deep and heavy, uh, like heady stuff. So I always, <laughs> I have to set aside time when I'm driving or, you know, not doing anything, uh, you know, involving focus. So Steve and his podcast has taken off. It's been incredibly successful and you have been in the last six months ish. You can correct me there. Basically traveling all over the world to mm-hmm. meet, often doing your interviews in person with top thinkers professors, uh, researchers in the various areas that you're interested in things from the foundations of logic to a lot of stuff in mathematics to quantum physics. Um, and it has been quite a journey to kind of follow you and live vicariously through you scouring the planet to find out if there are any clear thinkers, uh, left.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, thanks. That's a, that's a pretty, uh, fair assessment. Um, so yeah, I started the podcast in April And, um, since then we've been doing a ton of traveling. We've been to, my wife and I, um, are doing this together, been to six countries, um, been to California and,
0: well, uh, that makes seven countries.
1: (laughs) It's fair enough. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. So we had a lot of interesting conversations with lots of people about lots of different topics. I try to talk about anything that I find interesting, which is a whole host of issues. So it's everything from philosophy and math to physics and religious topics. Um, and yeah, it's I kind of view it as a personal Socratic journey with a microphone. It, um, and yeah.
0: So your, your topics tend to be, it seems like what you're, you're, you're um, you know, Patterson in pursuit and your website in pursuit of truth. It seems like what you're really always trying to get to is what are the core fundamental principles are there knowable universal objective truths about reality that we can get to and if they seem apparent why are all these people things as obvious as the law of identity uh, for example yeah. if they are fundamental truths why are there people out there who are proceeding with research and ideas as if those are untrue what do we make of this um that seems to be the unifying theme between, you know, the math, the philosophy, the physics, the even you get into some stuff with religion or uh, love and beauty. Um, it, would that be a fair assessment of the theme Is like a search for these core ideas? Now,
1: that's an excellent way of putting it. Um, yes. In fact, that's really explicitly what I do. That's my own personal philosophic methodology is I always want to examine the basics and the fundamentals. And there's a few reasons for that. So, my own pursuit of truth is not just in the world of ideas, it's also other activities. So, I've been doing the martial arts for a long time. Um, I'm, I love playing chess. You can find truth on the chessboard. Uh, you can, in, in art, in music, in all areas that I've examined, you have to analyze the fundamentals first. Because if you get the fundamentals wrong, it doesn't matter how much you practice, how deep you go, how much of an expert you are all of your ideas are gonna be based on mistaken premises. And exa- I love to always talk about the martial arts when I'm talking about philosophy, because in the martial arts, you have masterful uh, you know, Aikido practitioners who've been the experts in the field for 20 years, and they know back and forth all the history and all the theory. And if they have not examined other styles outside of Aikido, they're not going to realize their fundamental presuppositions are wrong. And therefore, their 20 years of of attempted mastery Is is based on some some lies and so you see that correlated in the world of ideas all the time If you get the basics of economics wrong uh, You're gonna make errors throughout your economic worldview. if you get the very very basics as you're you're uh, pointing to of Logic wrong if you don't understand the law of identity and non-contradiction which I claim is the foundation for all knowledge in all areas of thought then you're going to have errors permeate every facet of your worldview and so What I have found in my own investigation is there are a limited set of certain truths, certain logical truths um, that are true. I know that they're true, and in fact, I'd say I'm certain that they're true, and they're not very difficult to understand if you know kind of how to think about them. But there is a huge amount of people out there who I call irrationalists, who deny that these things are true. They'd say, no, you can break the laws of logic. Say, wow, what are the arguments? that could convince somebody that you could break the laws of logic. And so I've investigated, and I found a few different areas. Some come from quantum physics, some come from philosophy, uh, some come from claims of uh, religious experience. And so that's what I try to do, is I try to sniff out what uh, what are the causes of this irrationalism, and is there some way I can maybe clear up the confusion? And I think, uh, I think I've think i done a pretty good job of that so far.
0: Where Where do you think that motivation comes from? Something as basic as you know, uh, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, um, things like, you know, uh, very basic, almost uh, tautologies that if you, if you repeat them, people will say, well, yeah, that's, that's true, but it's not that interesting. What's the point? Why, why is, what's the incentive to attempt to contradict those? Is it, is it that people just really have like the people who are doing this? very unclear thinking, and they're just not very uh, intelligent or or uh, you haven't spent much time thinking clearly about things. Is it that they know that, but the world to them would be too boring? Um, if you couldn't make up <laughs> theories that contradict it, and so they're gonna, oh. or, or is it a way to, is it a way to signal that you're smarter than everyone? Like, look, I'm so smart that I actually know that two plus two doesn't equal four, <laughs> as just like a, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? What what do you, what have you found yeah, to be the most plausible explanation for this confusion?
1: I I do not know. Um, That is, it's an incredible Damn it, I was hoping you'd solve that. (laughs) Now, I have some suspicions, but I waffle between my attempted explanations because, uh, for example, so I was in California a few months ago, and I spoke with a philosopher out there who I really respect. We had some really interesting conversations, and I was telling him kind of what I just told you. I'm interested in what I call irrationalism, I'm interested in logic, and I was vigorously arguing, this is based on some uh, conversations like I even had on on the podcast, um, where I was talking to a philosopher slash mathematician at Columbia, who was telling me that squares could be circular and that logical contradictions exist. <laughs> and so I was talking to this guy in California. I was saying, No, no, you don't understand. These people really are actually claiming that you can have a true proposition that is logically contradictory. That you that you can have true and not true at the same time in the same way. And I and I get very fired up about that. And I said, This is so important. Like I got to clear this up. And he said, Steve. Do you really think that they understand like the meaning of their words? I said yes, yes, I have this this argument. He said no, Steve. Do you really think that they understand what they're claiming? And I thought, well, I'm not sure. In fact, no, no, I don't think they actually understand. I so I on the one hand, I'm arguing against irrationalism passionately. On the other hand, I think it might actually be a kind of genuine confusion about what the law of identity is. And so I don't think it's, I don't think it's stupidity. I think in in my own, just put shot a few shots in the dark. I think one is a little bit like you uh, mentioned that people try to sound smart because for some reason there's this phenomena where when somebody says something in totally incomprehensible, people think, wow, that must be really deep, right? The example I like to give is, you no, know, the cat is sitting on the chair and the cat is not sitting on the chair. And people go, whoa, that is heavy. That, that like, wow. I know
0: something that I don't.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incomprehensible to me, but it sounds plausible. So therefore, it must be over my head. Therefore, it's smart. And I want to sound smart. So I need to say, oh, yes, of course, the cat is on the chair and it's not on the chair. I understand. If you don't understand, you must be dumb. So that's one explanation. The other explanation, interestingly enough, I haven't spoken that much about this, but I've also found irrationalism crop up in a few weird areas, just in personal conversations that I've had with people. And it has to do with, um, you might call it anxiety. So I've met, I've met a few people who will, will be talking about logic and I'll be kind of picking their brain and they'll essentially say, look, I, I kind of deal with anxiety. I deal with uh, kind of feeling forced into doing this or that. And it overwhelms me, and if I can kind of embrace contradiction, if I can say, "Look, I'm not even bound by the laws of logic, that relaxes me. It calms me down now I have less pressure on me because everything is kind of uncertain, and therefore I feel it's like a calming effect now that's really interesting I think it's i think it's kind of sad, especially when that gets important into philosophy, but that's also one attempt to explain how somebody could argue against the law of identity.
0: It's very interesting how uh, and I've noticed this before in investigations into philosophical ideas you go, you start out going to get to these core principles and truth claims and try to understand you know the 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 logic behind various arguments and theories and it seems really hard to escape eventually realizing that what you're really talking about is either uh, psychological baggage that someone brings to the table <laughs> or just la- that it's just a it's a language problem and yeah, almost definitely. all seemingly you know, paradoxical philosophical problems turn out to be language problems, which, which to me is kind of unsatisfying because it's sort of like, no, I I want us to have an actual fundamental disagreement so I can clearly demonstrate that I'm right. But if we just keep having to realize that it's just about language and redefine it, it, I feel like language is so much more like, you know, liquid. It's, you can't nail it down, you know?
1: That is so funny, Isaac. Yes. uh, Everything you said is correct. So So I'm working on finishing up a book right now that is called Square One, The Foundations of Knowledge, and it is the most um, explanatory work. I'm trying to write a a basic book on logic that you could hand to anybody anywhere, and they're going to say, okay, I agree, there are some very limited truths that just have to be necessarily true, like, you know, things are the way that they are, (laughs) and they aren't the way that they aren't. Now... If you understand the meaning of those words that is true and that's what i'm writing the book out so that's why i call it square one like you have to at least agree on this but it, you're correct to say a huge amount of confusion comes from language um and so people say things like for example here's a here's a here's a contradiction i am tall and i am not tall well that could actually be true right i just have to be a little bit murky in what i mean by the term. so i am tall in comparison to the general public i'm six foot four but I'm not tall in comparison to professional basketball players. So I am tall and not tall at the same time. Oh, that's a contradiction. So people have tons of examples like that, or they give vague examples and they say, look, here's a true contradiction. And what you have to do is no, no, no. You have to unpack what you mean by your terms. You have to unpack language. So I, I see a huge amount of philosophy being just language examination. And it's so funny because I get, some, I get some heat from this. So I have a resolution to the liar's paradox, which I essentially say, uh, so the liar's paradox is the sentence. This sentence is false. And m- my resolution is to just essentially say it's a language error. And if you understand the principles of logic, you'll know it's got to be a language error because there can't be true contradictions. But I'll get, I get criticism from people sometimes and say, oh, well, Steve thinks he resolved the liar's paradox just by claiming it's not a paradox. You missed the point, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so in other words, they're trying to say, no, no, the whole point of the paradox is that it can't be resolved. And that's the profundity of it. And what I'm trying to say is no, you missed the you missed the point. The paradox is the apparent paradox. The so, point of the paradox is to resolve it, not to embrace it.
0: So maybe the the way to to make both parties be accurate or be correct, if I'm going to be generous here, would be they're saying the point of the paradox is to point out that language is too imperfect a tool for us to grapple with raw philosophical concepts, because when you have to use language, you can you can explain um you can use language in such a way that has the appearance of violating the laws of logic. And therefore, the paradox is logic is bulletproof until we go to talk about it. Then it opens room for confusion. Or at least that's that's one potential. but but here's so be, here's yeah. here's where it leads me, though, because, Language being so artful and contextual uh, context-based and and, and so fraught with these issues, you would think, well, then the one area is symbolic logic or mathematics where we've (laughs) removed the language variable (laughs) and you have found incredibly (laughs) there is some deep fundamental uh, irrationalism and rejection of these basic logical tenets like the law of identity. Even in the field of mathematics, that's supposed to, to remove this kind of ambiguity. Now, I'm going to put that up there as an appetizer or as a teaser, because <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I want to come back. I want to come back to math. I want to go uh, in depth about okay. your okay. your beef with math, because um, I sure. think it's really important. Sure. But before we do, I want to get a little more uh, fun here. I want some dirt. Give me some dirt. You Good. have been <laughs> you've been out and about all over to okay. some of the most prestigious places uh, in academia, talking with some prestigious yeah. professors yeah in doing this podcast in pursuit of truth and not only that you have had you have been bombarded on social media and whatever with people praising you often attacking you viciously over claims about mathematics and stuff what have you <laughs> learned so far about the state of I guess the ivory tower or the academy of the, the, the place that we all imagine as lay people, all these people way smarter than us are all doing their research in their peer reviewed journals and their conferences, and they all know what they're talking about. And it's, and out of that is going to come the next great Einstein. What, what's the dirt that you have from your experience so far? What's it really like? All
1: right. Now that, that is a, a really tempting question. Um, (laughs) That I have to I have to break into several parts. Um, so first of all, academia is a term that is too big, um, and the ivory tower is too big um, to meaningfully make precise statements about the system. I would say so. So I, I have to I have to take a little bit of time to answer this because I want to be very precise. Take your time. So from my experience, I think. It is true to say, one, that the system of academia as understood as a professional credentialing system whereby young intellectuals go to class, they learn about the world, and then they become uh, uh, not enlightened in a pejorative way, but they learn the ideas of the great thinkers, and then now they take that wisdom and can teach other people, and they become experts by virtue of the content they learn in class. That is certainly false um, it is a com- it is a complete myth what I've uh, what's interesting is I've met a few um, professors in the travel so far who I really think get it they're serious intellectuals they care about ideas they're pretty good communicators and what's interesting is I talk to them most of the time it's before sometimes it's after the interviews about academia because they're interested in the project and they're usually they're very supportive of what I'm doing and there's this interesting common thread and I say something along the lines of you know my personal experience in academia, I was very unsatisfied. I thought what I was being taught was such a tiny sliver of information that if I thought I knew what I was talking about after getting a BA, I would be completely deluded. And they almost always say, yeah, yeah, definitely. You have to do a huge amount of research outside of the classroom in order to really understand what you're talking about. So what it's an interesting correlation between people who agree with that and people who, in my opinion, seem to know the the actual basics of their their, uh, their subject. So if it's true that a genuine education, being an intellectual, knowing what you're talking about, is 95% learning stuff on your own outside of the classroom, then I have concluded uh, academia, for my purposes, serves little function, because I'm interested in the world of ideas, I'm interested in talking about them, discussing them, with, uh, discussing them grappling with them, um, and you just don't need that in academia uh you don't you' don't, I don't need to go to to class to to learn big ideas, in other words I'm very very, very confident about that and then we can we can keep talking about that um because I think one of the real dangers of the academic system is that it tricks people into thinking they are educated when they go through it when in fact they're not they just have one tiny sliver of information and a credential that unfortunately, I think people get confused by okay on the other hand, I think it is true to say that right now there is a higher ratio of intellectuals on campuses than in the general public. Now, I say that with a huge grain of salt. So I could say in my travels, I've met probably, I mean, just to be frank, you know, I could count on two hands the amount of people who I would consider genuine elite thinkers, really high level, understand the difficulty with the world of ideas. Maybe Maybe I can count them on two hands, maybe one hand. If that's true, it means the vast majority of people in academia you know if that ratio holds up, have no idea what they're talking about, they really don't uh, <laughs> They really aren't intellectuals, but there are there are a handful, and I think the ratio is larger in academia. I think if you were to just pick up a random uh, um, so if you were to interview your average academic about the world, they might in some ways have some more accurate worldview than the general public. But what I have discovered is that it's it's like a sliver of information, right? We do not live in a world where we have the uninformed general public and then the enlightened few in academia. We have the massively, massively uninformed general public and just the massively uninformed um, academic elite. And there are just a few uh, uh, sprinkled in there people who are in academia who I think generally get it. So it would be it would be a mistake to to say with a broad brushstroke that you know there are no intellectuals in academia, but I think, like I've written a little bit about this and um, I've done some YouTube videos on this and I did a podcast not that long ago about why I'm not in academia. I genuinely think that those people who are interested in the world of ideas, especially young people, when they look at the system of academia and they think this is my only option, I think because of the internet, we're going to see a big um, shift. I don't think that young intellectuals are going to have to go into academia. And what I'm trying to do in my work is demonstrate to the actual intellectuals out there that, look, you don't have to go into higher ed. You're not really going to become educated by doing so. The only thing that you get in higher ed is the credential. And you don't need it if you genuinely care about the world of ideas. So that's kind of a long way, uh, that's kind of, a long way of saying, I think that academics in general are you know, 95% they don't know what they're talking about. But I do think there are some genuinely elite intellectuals who do inhabit the academic system.
0: You know, one thing that I'm real big on is being aware of your own shortcomings as a human and understanding that the incentives you put yourself in are just as important as the intentions that you have. So if you want to lose weight, for example, um, you know, taking a uh, Christmas break job at a you know place that makes delicious cookies – is probably a bad environment for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, one, one thing with it with systematically with academia that I find a little bit troublesome is many of the, the reasons that people are there is not because they think it's the only place they can learn and share their ideas, but because it comes with a guaranteed paycheck. If you jump right. through the hoops, you get the paycheck and then eventually you get tenured And it, it lets them, um, it it removes, I guess, like some of that skin in the game and it removes that direct accountability, that direct link with finding an audience that values your ideas and will pay you to teach them or will pay you to research. Um, and if you don't have to do that, you can kind of be a little more. I mean, I think it's kind of a moral hazard. It's a, it's a, it's the intellectual equivalent of a trust fund baby. You know, hey, I want <laughs> you to take over the family business someday. It's really important. Oh, by the way, you are going to have an income for life provided for you. So, you know, like it's not that bad. Yeah. But and Nassim Taleb talks about this a lot. And he he's kind of a wild and crazy guy in many ways. But I I do enjoy his take on, you know, if someone doesn't have any skin in the game, um, the incentives for them you know, I mean, it's like this with sports, you know, so the betting line on a given sports game is going to be so much more accurate than the, uh, an opinion poll, you know?
1: Right. So yes. So if we're talking about in the incentives, I would say very emphatically that the incentive in academia is not to produce great work. It's just not And ter- now, great work, um, in terms of Clearly articulated ideas that can be understood by various people uh, that aren't just a you know a select few of specialists um, that are engaging relevant questions in philosophy that are engaging foundational questions. Um, the incentive in academia is publish or perish, and to a large extent, it doesn't even matter how accurate what you publish is. And now there's a there's a recent scandal that's going on called the replication crisis in academia, where a huge amount of scientific work, not just theorizing and philosophy, huge amount of scientific work is being demonstrated to not be reproducible at all, even by the people who have, you know, um, constructed the studies in the first place. They try to reproduce the results with their own methodology and they can't do it. And it's sweeping academia. And there's a reason for this. And I think if we, we could break down the economics of it, and I think it's an incentive problem. Right. Academics. Their incentive is publish or perish, regardless of the quality of your work, really, and get grants. Um, you have to get grants to, <laughs> you have to get grant money to research things that most likely, in if we had a, a a real market system, would not be researched. And I think largely because there's foundational errors in there. So this is this is why there's a there's a very strong differentiation in my mind between academia as a uh, like an economic system or as a, an establishment and the academicians. And I, I think the ac- the academic system is not concerned with truth-seeking anymore. Maybe it was, maybe a hundred years ago it was, I don't know, but it isn't anymore. And I'm pretty damn convinced of that. There are some individuals in academia who are probably concerned with the, the project of truth-seeking, but I think it's a, an extreme minority at this point.
0: You know, um, it reminds me of, we've had some, some parents, um, Interested in praxis. Luckily, we haven't had kids ask us this, but some parents were interested for their children. And then we've had some questions like, do jobs that people get with praxis have a pension? And our immediate <laughs> response is, this is not a fit for you. This is not what you're looking for. And you know, oh. if you were to say, right. what's the next great innovative business? Is it likely to be launched by someone who uh, works who who got a job at a unionized, you know auto plant and, or at some bureaucracy where, you know, pay is based on years of service and whatever. You'd say no. I mean, by by definition, those jobs attract the risk-averse. Innovation right. requires a high risk tolerance. And I think academia, there's some correlation there. By definition, it attracts more risk-averse people. So those who are going to make the big intellectual breakthroughs are not likely be found there because they're not you have to be risky and and you Hmm. have to be willing to be wrong too you have to be willing like truly bold crazy stuff that would be embarrassing if you're wrong risk averse people will not do that and risk averse people go for those jobs with guarantees um which which are found in academia so the real forefront i don't think is as likely to be there in many ways
1: i completely agree and this is a really interesting um, topic because in my mind i have i often think and after examining the foundations in various fields of thought, I have discovered what I I think are really big errors. And I often think, how could it be that for so long, let's say errors in mathematics have been around for a century and they weren't cleared out of academia, they weren't cleared out of orthodoxy and and mathematical thinking. And it might have something to do with the risk averse nature of academics. However, I'm not sure if what's going on is that, that um people are just afraid to speak out and therefore that's why we get errors perpetuated in academia for so long or if or the much more sinister possibility which i have a suspicion might be true is that those people who are naturally drawn to groupthink who are who aren't just risk averse but in their in their actual mental processes place a huge amount of trust in the expertise of others. I think those are the people that are drawn into academia because they get the accolades from the people that they respect and they feel like intellectuals. And I think they actually believe these, what I, I consider to be systemic errors. It's not that, oh, well, I think they're wrong and I'm not willing to question them. It's that, they, oh, well, these ideas have been accepted for the last century, therefore they must be right. And this is a methodological error if we're interested in the truth. And I think those that type of people who are who are... Who have the tendency tendency to make that type of error are naturally drawn into academia. There's a very much like because i'm I have these radical ideas and I'm engaged with academics all the time, there is so much aggressive um, I call it groupthink, we could put it more nicely, but that's really what it is that what if if what you're saying is right, Steve, then what are you saying that ninety five percent of all the professionals are wrong who have been studying this stuff for thirty years or 60 years or whatever, I'm saying, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And of course, we would all be saying that if we were talking to the professional astrologer who's been doing his work for 30 years, we would say the exact same thing about people who are engaged in maybe evangelical religions, that they're so quick to disparage, that, oh, they've been theologians for 40 years, you think there's no God because of blah, blah, blah. Like, look, Are you, you gotta going to disagree
0: be... with ninety-five percent of churches all over the country. Exactly.
1: It's, yeah, and so I don't make the distinction because I'm outside the system. I don't make the distinction between groupthink in the church and groupthink in academia. And if you just look at it from an outside those establishments standpoint, they look pretty much identical.
0: It's sort of the uh, you know in, in economics, the efficient market hypothesis. The old joke is you know well, there's no twenty dollars side uh, twenty dollars bills on the sidewalk. Uh, Because if there is, somebody would have found them already. It's (laughs) kind of the intellectual equivalent of that. You know, like, look, we got a lot of people working on this stuff, Steve. If you're right, they would have found it already. You know, I I can't help but wonder, because I'm so interested in in radical education from the earliest age. When you look at the education system from day one, the things that get you good grades and honor rolls and rewards and your teacher liking you and recommending you for scholarships and then fellowships, the whole school system top to bottom is really like geared towards creating professors yeah. and everything else it does. It does with decreasing effectiveness. Like it's not good at creating salespeople or entrepreneurs or whatever. And so the people who succeed within the education system are those who are um, really well suited to continue to go and be professors. And when you think about mm-hmm. what that means, what does succeeding at you know kindergarten, fifth grade, 10th grade, What does that look like? It looks like digesting the information that the teacher Mm -hmm. gave you in a textbook written by nameless experts, and because it's published by whatever academic publishing house, you're just going to trust that the experts are correct, so much so that getting a good grade means memorizing their answers based on their thoughts and their research, and then regurgitating them on a test, and then you are told, good, you now have an accurate understanding of history. (laughs) Because you repeated somebody else's understanding, and they were vetted by an academic publishing house, and chosen by a bureaucrat, and we've been using them for 10 years. You're, you're You're never asking those questions, you're just told, Steve, congratulations, you got the highest grade in the class, therefore you have the best understanding of history. But all it really means is, you memorized one person's opinion better than anyone else, which is probably more dangerous than otherwise, you know?
1: Yes. Now you're, so you're looking at it from a systems analysis standpoint. I think that's the correct way of looking at it. You can see a methodological flaw in that establishment. And I was certainly taught that. And it took me many years to realize but to, to my skepticism. Like I, I feel like, um, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm a, I'm a bit toxic. Like, my, my intention is to corrupt <laughs> the minds of people who are a little bit skeptical, because what I'm saying is not—don't believe what I'm saying. Like, don't, don't take my word for it. I, that's not the, the correct methodology for understanding the truth. Just entertain the idea for a second. Entertain it that maybe the last century of modern mathematical thinking has been built on a contradiction. I'm not saying it's true. And if I'm wrong, good. Point it out to me. Let's laugh at me. Like, I would love to realize my error and then we'll be friends. Great. I can be part of the club. Okay. Just entertain the idea and then investigate for yourself. And what you'll find, I think, is that, oh my gosh, there actually is a very legitimate case to be made that all of those experts did make the same foundational error. And of course, it's not unique to mathematics. If you understand, if you have a heterodox understanding of Economics, you're going to be saying the same thing. Like, how how many words have been written about the importance of GDP and the and focusing on GDP in economics when there's not a really clear understanding of what GDP is, right? It's that people <laughs> obsess about the mathematical abstraction rather than what the abstraction is supposed to reference, and then they disconnect the, and then they're manipulating this abstraction in their heads, and it gets all wonky. Where you think, you know, if you have a natural Disaster, it's going to be a boost of GDP, and maybe that's a good thing. It's like, what are you? What, you're completely, completely off base. And it's just these foundational errors. So that's—and and the thing is, I'm grateful for my op- own upbringing, because I was brought up in Christian evangelicalism, which I, f- I was very aware, for whatever reason, uh, about the processes of reasoning in my particular very, very dogmatic um, uh, upbringing in Christian evangelicalism. And the same thought processes that I had that I was taught to think, the the reasons for my beliefs I discovered were flawed. The methodology was flawed. And after inspecting that, I thought, hmm, okay, so this is a bad method, a bad way of reasoning. And then you see the exact same method of reasoning in academia from kindergarten all through through higher ed. Now that's not to disparage Christian evangelicalism. I brought that up a couple of times. I mean, I already, I, I have some kind of, Personal religious belief, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, a foaming atheist that thinks all religious people are nutjob. I don't want to imply that. I'm just well, saying it's, that it's
0: fitting because yeah. the academics who don't like sort of your approach in their field, they already accept that it's not a sufficient argument when a Christian says, well, this can't be true because if it was, that would make the Bible untrue. They already exactly. accept in that context that they think that's a bad argument, but when exactly. it comes to, you know, And that's, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, I've noticed this watching all the the commentary on your, on your math stuff. I have yet to see more than one or two in the dozens and dozens that I've seen that aren't some that are, that are anything other than just an appeal to authority. They're wrapped up in other stuff, but they all essentially say, Steve, what you're saying can't be true. And when you say, why not? Because if it was, then that would mean these authorities are wrong. And that's just crazy. Well, why is that just crazy? Can you can you lay out for me your own arguments? You know, I mean, it's it's just that if you find, I mean, and this is easy for all of us to do. If you find yourself saying, I've got some new theory, this seems so common sense, you know, like the GDP one. Once you start understanding what it is and how economies work, you say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. But if I'm right, it would mean that pretty much every journalist and economist and policymaker for all of my life <laughs> has been doing something that's obviously stupid. That doesn't right. mean- that can't be. Therefore it can't you know, it's it's dangerous. Yeah. It's it's yeah. worth asking why so many people are wrong and it's worth giving yourself a little humility and, and saying, well, why do all these people, I want to take yeah. it slow, but it's not an argument in and of itself to say that can't be true just because smart people think otherwise.
1: Well, exactly, and here's the killer thing, Isaac. Here's the really killer thing. If you had a, a very convoluted, complex, difficult-to-understand explanation for why GDP isn't as important as people think it is, maybe people would take you seriously. they go, <laughs> oh, wow, this is a real, like if you published a 400-page book that explain the subtleties of GDP, maybe people will be like, okay, we need to take them seriously. If you have an article on, you know, I I know there's an article by Steve Horwitz. wrote an excellent article not that long ago about uh, why GDP is kind of uh, a red herring. It's, I don't know, 1,500 words long, max, crystal clear, like, oh, very basic concepts, you can understand it, in about 30 minutes, boom, you're going to go, okay, I got it. Because it's so unbelievably simple, people go, no, that can't be right. That's got to be wrong because it couldn't possibly. This error couldn't be so overwhelmingly simple.
0: Yeah, that's that's very very interesting. The the complexity bias maybe as as specialization <laughs> yeah. has reached a, such a level, we sort of have this assumption that if it's if it's a field that I haven't spent my life in and the argument's easy enough for me to understand, I'm probably wrong. How can you go straight from high school to working in the marketing department at a growing Bitcoin startup? Praxis, that's how. One of today's sponsors is Praxis and James Walpole, a Praxis alum, did exactly that. He applied to the program right out of high school, decided to defer college for a year. Uh, He had been accepted at a few schools, jump into Praxis with both feet. He was placed at a Bitcoin company based in Atlanta doing uh, all kinds of interesting work helping small businesses adopt the technology. He loved it. He engaged with his work and the Praxis curriculum and educational experience. He ended up launching a podcast. He started blogging regularly. He started doing digital marketing consulting on the side in addition to his job. He ended up getting hired on full-time after the program as so many of our graduates do. Now he's working there while most of his peers have just finished One year of more classrooms under more fluorescent lights and cinder blocks, filling out more assignments and struggling to make it to class on time, a repeat of high school. He's been out there in the world. He already has the job that he had hoped college would help him get. Zero debt, no wasted time. He's creating the life he wants. You can too. Check it out. Discoverpraxis.com. I'm not going to promise you it's easy. I'm not going to promise you, you'll get in. It's a tough program. It's competitive. And once you're in, you got to be all in. It's on you to get out of it, what you want. But if you show the effort and commitment, I guarantee you the Praxis advisors and coaches will help you create the life that you want. Discoverpraxis.com. Now back to the show. So I want to get to the actual content of this math stuff. Yeah, yeah. This is really interesting to me. So I'm not a mathematician by any stretch, um, and I know almost nothing about the, the the theoretical. You know, any math that I can't do on uh, my spreadsheets for my business is sort of you know beyond my <laughs> my scope. But I have followed and read your stuff, um, and it kind of started. It seemed like when you were when you were starting looking at the existence of paradoxes in philosophy and so things mm-hmm. like Zeno's paradox the the idea yeah. that you know you can never reach point uh, b if you leave from point a because there's an infinite number of halfway points in between and so you'll just keep right. being halfway there and this led you uh because you don't have a background in math either this led you mm-hmm. to this concept of you know infinity and into uh set theory and and different parts of calculus and and mathematics so give us an elevator breakdown of okay What's the core finding that you have found that you think the error that's at the heart of so much mathematics?
1: Sure, there's two. So the one is about metaphysics, um, and it has to do with whether or not numbers exist in some platonic realm separate of our conception or whether numbers are mental constructions. That might seem like it's very abstract and not relevant, but in fact, it has all kinds of really important implications. So one is metaphysical. Um, and the other is logical, and it has to do with the meaning of the term infinite or infinity. And Zeno is actually the correct place to start. So I've always been interested in like the infinite regress, infinite causal regress, is there a first cause, that kind of thing. And then I was never satisfied with supposed resolutions to the infinite regress. And this has been going on for many, many years. But I for whatever reason, was examining Zeno's paradoxes in the course of um, uh, looking for causes of irrationalism. And there's this claim about, okay, well, as you said, you know, between point A and point C, there's essentially an infinite number of uh, other points. And the argument essentially goes like this. Calculus solves Zeno's paradox. That's what that's essentially the resolution, the modern resolution to Zeno's paradoxes. Calculus solves Zeno's paradoxes.
0: and and in and in what way? Like you can get from point A to point B because yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. So, yes, the idea is as you get closer to the end point, the amount of time it takes for you to to cross that uh, distance shrinks. and it they're supposed to ultimately um, terminate. So, in other words, Though you may have to cross an infinite amount of points, the relative time it takes you to cross those points decreases, and therefore there's this magic convergence that happens, um, and you know the the tortoise can solve the or Achilles can can catch up to the tortoise.
0: And, and your now, solution is that this this isn't actually an infinite amount of space by logical necessity. Right. If you can cross it, it's not infinite, uh, and we can obviously observe that something can move from point A to point B. So it, it it is a finite space. You can't have an infinity within a right. finite set.
1: Right. So um, m- m- a lot when I wrote that article on um, Zeno's paradoxes, pretty much I was on a, a consistent um, uh, regularity. I was posting things like, okay, this is how we resolve this paradox. This is how we resolve this paradox. And this was it's called defending Zeno's paradox because I was saying, well, no, actually, Zeno has a point here. If it's true that you have to cross an actual infinite number of points to get from A to B, you can't do it by definition so of what we mean by. You're saying
0: calculus is wrong. Calculus can't just say we solved it.
1: Well, so there, so this is this is very uh, no, that's not what I'm saying. Um, oh, okay, okay. It is not true to say that calculus is wrong. <laughs> Here's what I would say. The reason calculus works is because there are no infinities. There's this idea that in calculus uses infinity uses actual infinities, and no that's not the case. The reason that, for example um, the motion is possible is because reality ultimately has an indivisible base unit otherwise we couldn't have motion for the reason that Zeno pointed out so this uh, this is a really um I get a lot of flack for this, because people say, Oh, so, oh, so calculus is wrong. I say, Well, no, but the reason calculus is right isn 't the reason that you think calculus is right, which is a much more difficult position to um, to make and let me give you an analogy. so imagine that we were talking about um, the Ptolemaic model of uh, the solar system, which what that is is essentially the Earth is in the center of the solar system, the sun revolves around it, the stars revolve, revolve around it it's this beautifully, beautifully intricate theory. Um, where you can track the motion of the stars. Each uh, the motion of the stars had these little epicycles where the stars go around the Earth, and then they do this little mini spin. Uh, they kind of reverse track, and then they then they keep going around the Earth. Beautiful, incredible explanatory power, and for lots of good reasons, people believed it for a long time. Well, though it had amazing explanatory power, the actual underlying theory was wrong. So when heliocentrism came around, where okay, the sun is in the middle of the solar system. Now, whoever was claiming that first, that the sun is actually in the middle of the solar system, had a difficult job. Because not only did they have to explain the errors of the theory of the Ptolemaic model, they also had to explain why the Ptolemaic model had predictive power, and they also had to explain why their new theoretical, um, uh, their their new theory has as much or more explanatory power. This is the same phenomena with uh, calculus. So what I have to do is say, look, I acknowledge that calculus in practice solves Zeno's you know, paradoxes. I'll grant you the predictive power. However, the reason that you think it does that is mistaken. And we can have calculus with all its amazing predictive power and reject infinities at the same time, which is a very controversial position.
0: So when you say infinities don't exist, give me a little more clarity on what you mean by that. Like, as sure. a philosophical concept, are you saying? infinity something that goes on forever is an incoherent concept or are you speaking specifically in the realm of mathematics uh, something more tightly defined
1: so it depends on what we mean by the term there are different ways we can mean the term infinite so what I would say my um, objection is to say that there are no infinities with boundaries around them so there's this very central idea in modern mathematics of the actual infinite uh, the infinite or the completed infinite that you can have infinite sets and you can even have bigger or smaller sizes of infinite sets in fact they think you can have an infinite number of different sizes of infinity this I think is complete nonsense you so can mean
0: not just a yeah. is not a I mean that just sounds like infinity by <laughs> well, definition goes on forever a set by definition is bounded how can you have an a that's a not a you know like that I mean to me okay. to my, maybe I'm, I'm missing something
1: so that is my claim. <laughs> it is, it's like the GDP claim. It that if seems unpack- so
0: simple, I must be wrong.
1: <laughs> yes. It, so, right. So this, okay. So before I answer that, I have to say this, because if mathematicians are listening, their heads are going to go, this
0: is, this is complete
1: ridiculous nonsense. Their heads are going to explode, and I'm going to get some angry hate mail. So my claim is that shot throughout mathematical work, is an error in mathematical language. This is coming back to the metaphysics of mathematics. This is crucially important. That when mathematicians use their mathematical language to make claims, what I'm saying is the way that they phrase things implies logical contradictions or that the concepts are imprecise or that they're Mm. at the very, very, very least completely disconnected from reality. And some of them actually might agree with that, that last proposition. So what I'm saying is it's something Absolutely foundational to the nature of modern mathematical reasoning is an error in its language um, which is Yeah uh, Which is important, but it's we have to be very precise when we're talking about it. So in regards to infinity if we're talking about Infinity meaning something which actually has no end an actually never-ending process not a, not a potential infinity not something that can be continued forever but something that is actually infinite, that you could have all, let's say, of an infinite number of things. You could have all the positive integers, let's say. I'm saying if you unpack the concept of all (laughs) of integers and of set, there is no room for infinity. You, You cannot have all the positive integers. That is a sentence. And it contains a logical contradiction. So then what mathematicians, and this, this is not a unique criticism, this is a criticism 100 years ago people were making, but for whatever reason it's fallen out of favor that people, you're not supposed to say things like this. But then mathematicians will say, well, we're not really saying, oh, well, we're doing this well, we mean something that's different than the, the way that you mean it. But all of this is unnecessary. If we want to preserve common sense, um, the, the explanatory power of mathematics, um, and rationality—the idea that you can't have a logical contradiction—it's very easy to preserve the edifice of, of um, practical mathematics. It's just, in order to do so, you have to reject the way that mathematicians have been going about their craft for the last century. And it's funny—I was just talking. Um, I haven't released this interview yet, but I was just talking to a guy at Harvard about the metaphysics of math, and he jokingly said um, that a huge, like, 20th century and 21st century mathematics. Has no application whatsoever to the real world, and he was saying it in a, in a funny way that I don't know. It'll be released in a few weeks, um, and he was wasn't saying it in a in a critical way. That it was like, oh yeah, well you know, like modern math for example doesn't tell you anything about the world, and it's not even clear whether or not you can make sense of the propositions. And dot 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 dot. It was just like, oh yeah, of course. Like this is just the nature of the, the craft. Isn't that interesting? And, and it was funny because I ch- I like laughed. I was like, yeah, well I agree. Modern mathematics doesn't is disconnected from the world, and you can't even make sense of it that's a bad thing. That's a criti- you know, something has gone wrong when you can say something like, oh, yes, th- uh, this area of thought, you can't really make sense of it. And it doesn't apply to the real world, but it's there. It, and, and he said, um, he said, Steve, it's consistent. What's important for math- mathematicians is that it's consistent. That's the only thing. I said, well, what do you mean by consistent? He said, well, it doesn't involve, you can't prove a contradiction um, within the system I, and not go too deep down the rabbit hole. But I said, look, one of the the axioms in modern math there's like 10 or so axioms one of them is explicitly literally an an explicit written out axiom that there is at least one infinite set it's in there it is in the foundational um, work so or in the in the in their foundational axioms so it's not so much for me that i'm saying you can prove a contradiction i'm saying the contradiction is in your axiom is in your foundational axiom now yeah. i have to say one more thing um because I, whenever I'm talking about mathematics, there's a lot of qualifiers, and I have to explain what I mean. Um, so somebody might be listening to this and say, "Okay, Steve, what's the biggest number?" Right? This is you get this. I get this all the time. Well, if if there are no infinities, what's the biggest number? So this is this question reveals the metaphysical mistake I think that permeates mathematics. Is people think numbers exist separate of our conception. The appropriate use of the term infinity is to say there is no inherent limit to the size of number you can conceive. That's what that if I were to say there's an if I were to meaningfully say there's an infinite amount of positive integers. That's what I mean to say. There is no inherent limit to the size of the number that you conceive. In no way does that mean there exists an actual infinity separate of my conception of it. Right. So what that actually means, practically, metaphysically speaking, is at any given time there is some largest number that is being conceived. Now, that doesn't mean you can't conceive of another one, but that larger number doesn't exist until it's been conceived by somebody else. So this is that metaphysical error that I think is is really, um, again, it permeates mathematical language to talk about numbers that exist somehow separate of our conception.
0: Does that, this is really interesting to me because in some ways, would that kind of thinking challenge the materialist worldview in, in by, in some sense being a mind over matter, uh, approach <laughs> where, where it says that conception is really the, the mental process that, that, um, you know, a number itself. And again, we're not talking about a, a physical good necessarily, but even mm-hmm. just the arrangement of, so, so the, the typical scientific approach is reality is out there, It's this thing, all aspects of it, the laws of nature and all these things for us to discover. Um, And even things that are non-physical in some sense are sort of seen as out there for us to discover. But you're implying that concepts uh, such as a perfect triangle or a number are actually in us and we create them as a way to explain or as conceptual tools for the world this is there a, is there a more radical implication to what you're saying or am I going too far
1: no no undoubtedly um, so with mathematics uh, materialism has a very difficult time whether or not you take the the standard mathematical approach which is that numbers are abstract entities that exist in a non spatial, non temporal realm, but that is kind of the standard assumption. Or you take the, my position is loosely called conceptualism, which is that of course numbers exist, but they're concepts, they're ideas. Um, and then there's one more possibility, um, which is the nominalist position, which is that numbers don't exist at all. They have absolutely no existence. So when we say the number three, it doesn't re- actually refer to anything. So my position actually, it sounds radical at first, which is interesting that we give this, but yeah, it, I agree it sounds radical at first. However, my position is that mathematics essentially is a language. So, this, the stat, the, uh, the ontological status of numbers is the same as it is with words and sentences. Ah, so, if so I were we to say, so don't
0: escape the language problem when we move into math. Uh, well,
1: right. So when I say so, like the, this is an example I give all the time. You know, Harry Potter. You know, th- does the concept of Harry Potter? What is the ontological status of Harry Potter? Well, you have the Platonic explanation, which is that it is a, a concept that exists separate of its conception, that we, we are conceiving of the object of the platonic form of uh, Harry Potter, which is funny, by the way, because I thought this was, I think this is kind of an absurd idea to think that concepts exist like harry potter and all of his forms and all of you know his different shapes of his glasses and different styles of hair and all those conceptual differences has an actual existence separate of anybody's conception of it i think is crazy
0: would that be sort of the in modern times sort of a Jungian like like there's this yeah this archetype and we sort of the jk rowling tapped into uh, knowledge of an existing archetype
1: it could be. I I not. I don't know that much about Jung's okay. philosophy. Ne- neither um, do
0: I. I just say stuff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, so this is interesting because this position is
0: is actually I think the, even
1: the standard position in philosophy, believe it or not. Because I had a couple of conversations when I was at Oxford, where I was talking to people specifically about this issue, and like you can listen. These have been released. At least one of them has been released. He was saying, yeah, yeah, of course, of, in some thin sense, of course. Um, you know, some I gave the example of imagine somebody misreads Harry Potter ten thousand years in the future, and they think that you know, uh, you know, Harry Potter has square glasses. Right? Nobody had ever thought up into that moment that Harry Potter has square glasses. So that concept of Harry Potter having square glasses, right now, if nobody were to have thought of it, it still has, it would have some type of existence. He said, Yeah. I was like, What? That's crazy. Okay, so that's one, that's one possibility. When we're talking just about language and concepts. The other possibility is to say that Harry Potter does not exist, the nominalist position. The the term Harry Potter does not refer absolutely uh, doesn't mean anything. This is also, I won't go into it, again, this is the conversation I just had a few days ago. Um, It's an interesting position. I'm tempted by it, but I don't think it's the case. What seems obvious to me is that, of course, Harry Potter exists, but he doesn't exist separate of our conception. Harry Potter doesn't have some spatial existence that he's taking up, unless you're talking about Daniel Radcliffe. You can say true and false things about Harry Potter, talking about a concept in my head. You know, just like there are there are characters that will be created in novels that have not been written that right now don't exist. Nobody's conceiving of them. When they are conceived, then that is the nature of their existence. So
0: I, I can— conce- That seems to tie into some of the popular theories in quantum physics, uh, uh, almost, <laughs> that, that if uh, if the possibility of Harry Potter having square glasses exists, like— like as a possibility, even if it's never been conceived of, there's the, the possibility itself. Itself it, is itself some sort of independent entity, or or I don't know. I could be getting that wrong, but it, it makes me think of some of the the wackier yeah. stuff I've heard.
1: Yes, um, but so but there's one more there's one more about see to see how I think this is kind of the common sense answer here, that the way that mathematicians, for example, talk about numbers, they'll say things like you know. Uh, the set of all positive integers is an actual infinity. It's actually infinite now, what if I were to say the sentence that contains an actually infinite number of words like well, you're not actually referencing anything. You could say you know I, there is no limit to the amount of words that you can put into a sentence, but that doesn't mean that some sentence exists out there separate of our conception that contains within it an actual infinity i think that concept doesn't exist or i don't think that concept even makes sense but that's precisely the error that the mathematicians are making when they talk about sets in particular
0: interesting the, yeah got so i'm actually i'm actually surprised to hear you say that you think in philosophy this metaphysical view of concepts sort of existing is the dominant view correct me if i'm wrong so i've always sort of understood it as that's kind of the the platonic view that these uh-huh. things exist and, um, you know, as sort of these these ideal concepts are actually existent out there. And then Aristotle disagreed and Aristotle sort of won the day and that's modern Western philosophy is, <laughs> is more Aristotelian. Is that – you don't think that's um, true?
1: Well, I, I don't know. And, and in fact, I only say that. I would not – I never have claimed that prior to six months ago but i only say that because of conversations i'm having with academics where when we talk about these ideas they'll they'll say these things which i and it's funny because this this i asked his name is timothy williamson he's a very well-respected philosopher in oxford in fact i thought he had a lot of really great things to say he was one of the one of the interviews i thought wow this guy really grasped logic for the most part but when he said it i let out an audible laugh and i felt i felt bad about it (laughs) i was like this is uh, everything he said up into that point for the most part was so sensible, and then he's essentially saying, you know, all possible future conceptions from the beginning of time till you know a hundred million billion trillion years from now have an actual existence, and he said it in such a way he was like, yeah, of course that's the case. So, I don't and even know and what this is be- mean. It just means you have a massive ontology that's filled with <laughs> an in, you know, inconceivable amount of uh, different things. When, when, maybe that's true. And I'm not saying that yeah, idea yeah. Is, is a logical impossibility, maybe that's true. But wouldn't it be a lot simpler if we could just say concepts don't exist separate of their conception?
0: Well, it doesn't seem like it's falsifiable. Not, not that that, uh, you know, I mean, it may, it may still, still be true or useful, but to say something that steve is going to think of tomorrow that neither of us neither of us know what it is today but we can know that it exists today and and in some way you're not going to think of it you're going to discover a pre-existing concept it's it's kind of a it's kind of turning on its head the role of humans whether we are creative fundamentally or simply um recipients of uh you know knowledge that sort of exists elsewhere Exactly, and are we uh, receiving but, or what, broadcasting? That's that's interesting. Yeah. So um,
1: what they'll say. So I was talking to a, a philosopher in Atlanta about this. What they'll say is, well, when you reference the concept that Steve will think of that we don't know right now, well, what are you talking about? How can you talk about it if it doesn't have some type of existence? And again, I think this is just a confusion about language. It's just it's an it's a it's it's a fair point to say we're acting as if such a thing exists beforehand by referencing it. But I think you can resolve that fairly clearly without thinking that it has some some actual ontological existence in the present.
0: That's funny because, uh, again, not all, but most academics are um, atheists or or at least at least not um, real big on the traditional you know, religious conceptions. And I've heard many, many uh, theists or theologians make a similar argument. Well, the fact that you can even talk about the concept of God means that it must exist. And then an atheist yeah. will usually reply, yeah, we can talk about a purple elephant with spaghetti right. arms. Um, <laughs> therefore, you know, anything you can talk about must exist. What does that mean? What does existence mean? And it's usually a pretty, it's, you know, a, a, a theologian or, a, or a, a theist in a debate usually doesn't want to go down that route because they don't do very well. Um, right. So that's interesting that when you move into the realm of something like mathematics, um that's like that same thing that uh, that uh, you know some some maybe religious people would appeal to is is appealed to. So okay, here's where the rubber meets the road, Steve. Okay. Why does this matter? What what would be what would change in the world if math and and metaphysics and the, these these areas of of study that are affected by this uh, what you're claiming is a fundamental uh, misunderstanding or error? What would change if that changed would it so there would it matter yeah. to the world
1: yes greatly um, and there are a few reasons why one errors including infinity not necessarily in metaphysics but infinity are imported into other areas like in um, physics for example you have lots of different areas like in string physics and uh, or in string theory people talk about um, infinite magnitudes infinite densities and even even um, yeah. So so they kind of say,
0: we've received this from math. Math got it right, so let's build on it. But they might be building on something that isn't right.
1: I wouldn't necessarily say they received it from math, but what they would, I think, what the idea is that there's no um, incoherence involved because infinities have been accepted into mathematics for the last century. That's at, least, that's at least the way that I would put it. So there are other areas that import infinities and in, just in mathematics. I mean, there's tons of fields, like in topology, for example, where the idea of infinities is everywhere. And there's, if what I'm saying is true, that there are no actual infinities, a great deal of different areas in modern mathematics are largely based on, on the error and can't even be revived. Something like set theory, I think, can be revived you just exclude infinities from it and you can work from there but there are other areas where just completely completely would be destroyed Um, but the more that's not nearly as important as this that at least in the modern world in my lifetime and the people that i have spoken with lots and lots of people and students that i have spoken with there is a rampant culture of irrationalism that says you can't know truth there is no such thing as truth you can't have certainty that's dogmatism that's religious fervor that's not scientific and it's very much anti-intellectual and what happens this happened to me and i think it's happened to a ton of people is when you when you're skeptical of that and you think well surely at two plus two equals four right i got to be able to know that and therefore if i can know some things why can't i know other things well what people will do is draw from the work of Um, mathematicians, and they'll draw from even the work in quantum physics, and they'll draw from um, other areas to try to prove that human reason is foundationally flawed and you can't know anything. And that is not just purely um, esoteric, and it's not just affects those in higher ed. I think it permeates throughout every aspect of our culture. So for example, there are, without going into detail, I would say there are certain, um, how to put it nicely, cultural groups, let's say, that I think is this is even correlated to political um, ideology and political affiliation, which this idea of relativism is very, very, very deeply entrenched. And because they say there is no such thing as truth, it has ethical, ethical implications. It has political implications. It has personal identity implications when you think, look, my truth is my truth. It's not your truth. You just have to accept you just have to accept that what I say is true to me and it might not be true to you, but hey, we, you know, there is no truth, so we just have to deal with that. I think every, virtually every area of thinking which directly impacts the world gets tarnished and poisoned by irrationalism. And this is kind of the seed of it. I see the seed of irrationalism coming from confusion about logic and immediately from that, confusions about uh, mathematics. So if we can eradicate the idea that... There are actual infinities and there are logical contradictions from um, purely cerebral work. I think that absolutely will massively impact culture, because now if you make the cultural relativist claim or any other relativist claim, now you can be challenged. And it's not, oh, look, all these brilliant people in higher ed are saying that there is no truth. Obviously, there is no truth. If that can be meaningfully challenged and say, no, those ideas are proven wrong. In fact, there is truth. Here's the way that we can know. I think that has Huge implications. And if I may say one more thing, people like myself who are very passionately interested in seeking the truth in every area, it's incredibly um, – it takes wind out of your sails. It's very disheartening, almost depressing to live in a culture and to even have the ideas that, that truth is indiscoverable. So it's like uh, it just takes all the gas out of your engine when you think this is an entirely useless project, there's no hope, either for me to know the truth or for other people to know the truth, for us to communicate and discover truth. It's this uh it's this it's this huge foundational cut at, I think an idea that gives a lot of intellectuals a whole lot of momentum and and uh, personal excitement. I, and I know, I know somebody somebody right now is listening to this podcast and going, "Wow, somebody is making the absolute Radical claim. There is certain objective truth that we can know and prove right somebody is excited by that Just like I would have been excited if I were listening to that a few years ago So that's that's really I think it's a huge deal. I think it's a huge deal
0: man. You you just sold me so hard like (laughs) I already have loved your work for the approach you take and just sort of for the intellectual exercise of being forced to think clearly but I think you just articulated now I get what you're doing at a level that's so much deeper. That's truly inspiring to me because I'm so fascinated in individual freedom and fulfillment. And when you think about all that you need to show that something's true is to show that it already exists. So if someone says there's nothing, there's no truth, there's no universal objective, you know, anything we can understand. If you can show, look, here's one thing, here's one thing we can say is always true and it's knowable and it's understandable. You have now shattered that entire worldview. And to me, it, it opens up genuine optimism. Yeah, I know you think of yourself as a pessimist. Optimism and, and forward-looking opportunity, possibility. Well, if that's true, what else can we know? What else can we do with that knowledge? What else is possible? There's, there's actual progress that can be made. We don't just slosh around in the muck. And and on a personal level, you know, TK and I joke about this a lot. Whenever we say something like, Hey, you know, if you, whatever, some basic piece of advice, I, if, if you don't actually believe in the product you're selling, you're not going to be able to sell it or something. There's always someone who's going to respond with, yeah, but it's not true here. And we always joke because to us, it's just understood that there are certain ways you could take that, that it's not applicable to every person in every situation. And if it's not applicable to you, who cares? Ignore it. But I think what the people are actually wanting to say when they do that, what they're actually saying is this piece of advice isn't universally applicable and therefore it's useless. And therefore you're leading people, they they think it's dangerous, you're leading people to believe that they can actually achieve things in life because you're leading them to believe that there's a causal relationship in the universe between certain types of uh, behavior and mindsets and actions and certain outcomes, and that's just not true. It's a random roll of the dice, life isn't fair. I want an excuse to basically be unhappy and not take control of my life. I mean, I'm I'm maybe being uncharitable, but I think, I think what conscious or not, that lies at the back of many of those criticisms for everybody who says, here's a way to improve your life. You know, get up earlier and do three things that make you feel healthier, whatever. There's going to be someone who's going to chafe at that, not because of the specifics in the advice, but because of the implication that there are things about the world that you can actually know. And there are ways to bring about effects that are consistent and that will work if you try them. And I think that scares a lot of people and they'd rather have the, the ability to maintain their victimhood or their belief in the fundamental senselessness or unfairness of the world and it's all just an incomprehensible mess. And, and that to me is, is really is really dangerous and real freedom and fulfillment comes when you have that moment, you can know something. You can do something. There are, it's not all random. You know, I think that's really empowering. So I I love love what
1: you get it, Isaac. I mean, that was awesome. Look, so, well, we can can sum all this up in in two words that I find profoundly, profoundly inspirational and like soul invigorating for me. Truth exists. (laughs) Now, if that's true, if what I'm saying is true, then it has incredibly massive implications, not for just how you live your life but it also implies necessarily that this next sentence is true. Lots and lots of people, therefore, must be wrong, right? If truth exists, and you can know it, that means anybody who disagrees with a known truth is wrong. Now, if that's true, Immediately, it throws you into the, this world of, oh my gosh, how am I supposed to sort through this stuff? Okay, the truth is actually discoverable. All these different people are claiming these things. Maybe I can know they're right. Maybe I can know they're wrong. What are the, what's the methodology through which I need, to, I need to sort through these things? It's much easier to say, ah, the pursuit of truth, it's a waste of time. You can't know truth. And now you don't have to do any of the work. You don't have to be incredibly distressed. By the idea that maybe you're one of those people that's wrong. <laughs> you can just sit back and sit on your hands and go, well, you know, whatever. It's every, life is gray. Everything is blurry. You know, I can't know anything about anything, and, and I'm just going to do what I want to do. No, I think the sole invigorating thing is to say, no, truth exists, and it has gigantic implications.
0: Oh, man. As an entrepreneur, the first thing I think when you say, and that means a lot of people are wrong, is that means there are tons of of business opportunities, (laughs) you know, any, any time a great number of people are wrong about something, um, there is an opportunity to be right. And if you're genuinely right, there's an opportunity to gain from that, whether financially or, or as, as you know, in many ways, um, being an an intellectual, uh, pioneer in something. So I, I love that. I love the sort of opportunity, the optimism that that fundamental principle you're fighting for brings about Uh, Steve, when is your book coming out? I don't know, Isaac. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Can it uh, really be known? (laughs) April
1: 30th of this year. No, um, so that would be six months ago. Yeah. Um,
0: Oh, this year, of this year, okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm hoping that um, Cyber Monday, November 28th, is the day I, I think I'm actually going to do is make a pre-sale to make it happen. I'm ha- I've run into a lot of internal issues um trying to focus exactly what I want to say and a lot of things that I don't want to say. And so I, it had to be delayed, it's had to be delayed. I'm thinking okay, in the long run, I'm 6 months past when I wanted to release it. Or uh, in the short run that's what's going on. Okay. That sucks in the long run, I intend this to be the book. Like if if people are excited about what I just say, a truth exists, I want this to be the book that they can hand to anybody. They can read and go, yep, got it. This, this is true. Wow. And they can hand to anybody and be like, look, we're on the same page. There has to be some truth, right? Things are the way they are and they aren't the way they aren't, you know? Okay. We can agree on this. Now we can make progress. So I'm putting a huge amount of pressure on myself to make it, you know, what I want it to be, which is top-notch, not going to have to rewrite it. This is the way it's going to be. So I am hoping that uh, end of November, it is going to be set, final copy, good to go. I think people are really going to like it.
0: And the book is called Square One, The Foundations of Knowledge. No pressure, Steve, but the fate of humanity rests on this book. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Seth. Hey, this has been absolutely a blast. I thank you uh, for coming back on and, and diving in with me.
1: Thanks for having me. That was great.
0: Have a great day. You too. Hey, if you're a fan of the show, do me a huge favor. Go to iTunes, give it a rating or a review. A rating is only a simple click of a button, or if you're on your phone, a tap of a finger. And it will help people find the show a lot easier. And if you have a little extra time, write a review. What you think about the show, honest opinion. That stuff goes a long way in giving more exposure to the podcast. What do you get out of all of it? You get the pleasure of knowing that as more people start listening, you get to say, I was there first.